my kids are getting too old. I've lost the touch. That's the proof right there. <laughs> uh, it is a joy to be able to dedicate kids to God, though. I've, I always tell people I, I feel like feel like I've been successful in a sermon if the adults stay awake, but the kids have been able to fall asleep. Like if I can hit that spot, then then I'm doing well. Well, we're in, uh, we've been going through the Advent season, of course, and we're in uh, the fourth week. It's the fourth Sunday of Advent. Um, I was thinking this week about, uh, about a job that I held in college. I, I worked for a little while at a sporting goods store. And you don't have to work in retail long to know that the holiday shopping season can often bring out the worst in people. It's, uh, you'd think with all the sparkling lights and Christmas caroling and holiday cheer that 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 would be the best time to work in a retail store, but it's not. <laughs> and if you've been there, you know that too. And so I don't know if it's the, the pressure of completing the holiday shopping or, or the nagging feeling of the credit card bill that's going to come in January or, or just the, 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 the pressure of the upcoming family gatherings or a combination of all those things. But whatever it is, the, the employees at retail stores can bear the brunt of the anger in people when it boils over during, uh, during the holiday season. I always thought, you know, it's kind of ironic that the angels in Luke chapter 2 proclaim the birth of Jesus by, by saying, peace on earth. <laughs> and yet we look around and maybe we can look within and notice a lack of peace. And I don't think that there's necessarily less peace at Christmas time compared to other times. I, I do think the added pressures of, of Christmas time can, can maybe reveal a lack of peace that, uh, uh, that, that we already feel. But that's what we're going to be focusing on today, is peace. Yeah, when we were going through the book of James uh, this past fall, we, we talked at one point about how every person on earth strives for peace. We do. We maybe don't recognize that's what's going on within us, but we strive for peace in so many different ways. And due to the effects of sin, peace has been destroyed. Uh, because we were created to exist with peace and without sin, we long for what was broken to be restored. We long for peace to come back to us. We were just, we were created to live in peace. And even though we, we haven't experienced in this life, but all we can do is read about a time when all creation experienced complete peace, we are powerfully drawn to that kind of reality, aren't we? I mean, we maybe dream about what it would have been like in the Garden of Eden before sin entered the picture. We, we can imagine this existence where, where we have peace with God and peace with creation and peace with all, all other people, peace within ourselves. And we, we just long for that. And because we long for that, and because we don't 
have it on this earth due to sin, we long for the person or the being who can bring us that peace. Now, when we think about the context of Isaiah chapter 9, where we've been these last four weeks, this surely would have been the case then. When the people were confronted with the threat of the Assyrian army who was going to attack them, they would have longed for peace much more than they would have longed for war. They would have longed for someone to bring them that peace that they desired. And, and when we think about our own context today, we may not be facing the threat of literal war, but don't we have the desire for peace in the midst of uncertainty, peace in the midst of turmoil? And, and don't we long for someone or something to bring us that peace? So the question is, who can do that? Or is it even possible to experience that peace once again? What was, what was lost in Genesis chapter 3? Can, can we even have that in our lives? Well, Isaiah gives us hope. Isaiah prophesies that, that this child to be born, this son that would be given, would be called Prince of Peace. That's the fourth name in that list that we've been studying, the Prince of Peace. And, and as we've done the previous three weeks, we're, we're going to look at both parts of that final name, Prince of Peace. And so we'll begin by, by talking about peace, this concept of peace. Uh, I think a common way we, we, we visualize peace or we think about peace in our context today, and this is the first definition that, that the dictionary would give to us as well, it, it pertains to a lack of war or a lack of turmoil of some kind. So peace often describes a state of being that, that comes as a result of calmness or, or tranquility. Now, now you, might be, you might be familiar with the, the Hebrew word or the Hebrew concept of peace, and, and that would be shalom. That's the Hebrew word. When shalom is talked about in the Bible, it is sometimes used to reference the lack of war between groups or, or, or the lack of turmoil between individuals. But rather than viewing peace as, as only a lack of something, lack of war, lack of trouble. The Bible speaks of peace, of shalom, as, as, as something, the presence of something, presence of wholeness, or, or the presence of blessing. So it, it, it's this, really it's a state of being where things are as they should be. Things are right. And that really is, is what shalom is, everything being right. So shalom would, it would, inclu it would include uh, a, a lack of military conflict with a neighboring nation. That would be part of it. Shalom would also include healthy relationships between family members, between neighbors, coworkers, all of that. Uh, shalom would also include prosperity, economic prosperity, um, prosperity in terms of offspring as well. Uh, shalom would include physical health, mental health, emotional health. All of that is included in this concept of shalom, things being right. Now, 
it, it's, it's such a desirable state that it is the primary way in which Jews greet one another, even to today. That, that's the greeting, right? Shalom. To, to, to bid someone shalom isn't just to wish upon them the vanquishment of their enemies. It's, it's to speak a blessing over them. It, it, it's this blessing that includes all things being right. You're saying to the person, I hope you experience rightness. Can we even imagine that kind of an existence? Can we imagine living in an in a, in a existence where everything is, is as it should be? It's right. I thought maybe we could try this morning. And, and I think maybe one of the ways that we can try is by considering how much of our day requires us to give attention to all the things that aren't right. How much of our day is focused on those things? So, so for example, a, a life with complete peace, complete shalom, would be a life where violence and threats of any kind don't exist. So right off the bat, some of us would be out of a job because our job is directly involved with confronting violence or, or we, we, we make a product that would be needless if it were not for violence or threats. Um, you'd never have to go buy a lock for your house, right, for the front door. You, you wouldn't have to lock your car when you, when you have it in the parking lot. Um, you, could, you could walk up to a dog and not worry about if that dog is going to bite you or not, right? I mean, it's, it's, there wouldn't be threats. There wouldn't be violence. And it's interesting. Isaiah hints at this kind of future in chapter 11 when he speaks about the wolf dwelling with the lamb and the cow and the bear grazing together and the child playing over the hole of a cobra. I mean, it, it's just this existence of, of no threats, no violence. I mean, imagine that kind of a reality. But a, a life with complete peace, it would also be a life without broken relationships. So you could go to this year's Christmas gathering with joyful anticipation, knowing that everyone will get along and no one will argue about politics or past hurts or anything like that. When you have a conversation with someone, you, you could be confident that they were being completely honest with you. You'd never have to question that. You'd never have to discipline a child in that kind of a reality. You'd, uh, lawyers, judges, I mean, we, we would hardly need them if we even needed them at all. Uh, I mean, there, there would be no foster system. I mean, imagine that kind of a reality where all relationships are right. A life of complete peace would also be marked by prosperity, not poverty. So you could plant a garden or a field and you'd never need to weed it. That would be great. Um, insurance wouldn't be needed. Fires, tornadoes, floods, earthquakes, natural disasters, they wouldn't destroy. We wouldn't need insurance. Couples would, would no longer struggle with miscarriages or infertility or, or uh, childhood death. I mean, imagine that kind of a reality. A life of complete peace would be one of complete health. So your medicine cabinet would be empty. There'd be nothing in there. You're, the world would not shut down due to COVID. That'd be a good one. Um, you wouldn't have a single visit to the doctor, psychologist, counselor. Wouldn't be needed. Depression, suicide, those would be foreign concepts. I mean, 
PTSD would, would not have a hold on anyone. I mean, the entire medical field would cease to exist. You'd never look to food or fame or drugs or success or anything else to bring joy and fulfillment. I mean, imagine that kind of reality. How completely different would our day look if shalom permeated everything? I mean, sign me up. I mean, wow. Should we even allow ourselves to think about that? Because we look around and, and, and wow, that's not where we are right now, right? So should we even let ourselves think about that? Are we just setting ourselves up for disappointment if we think about that kind of an existence? Well, in a world without a savior, yeah, that'd be the case. We would be setting ourselves up for disappointment. We would be stuck in this peaceless world. We'd be wallowing in the effects of sin. There'd be no hope for anything better than what we have right now. But that's in a world without a savior. If there could be such a savior, then there would be hope of experiencing shalom, perfect peace once again. And that's what Isaiah is proclaiming to the people in chapter 9. And, and it's not just in verse 6. Um, if you look at verse 5 with me in Isaiah chapter 9, it again talks about this kind of shalom and the ramifications of it. So verse 5 says this, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. Why would, why would boots and blood-stained garments, presumably from battle, no longer be needed? Why would they be more valuable as fuel for the fire? Because war doesn't exist anymore. Peace reigns. Military equipment would be useless when peace is restored. That's the kind of reality that Isaiah is, is prophesying here. Now, it, this is in a time when the people of northern Israel were probably taking careful stock of their military supplies because Assyria was coming. And what the prophet Isaiah says is there's a time coming where that stuff's not even going to be needed. In fact, they'd be burned because they'll never be needed ever again. And, and perhaps the more famous prophecy along those lines comes from Isaiah chapter 2 that we read earlier when he speaks about beating swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Weapons just aren't needed when shalom is present, when the Prince of Peace comes that Isaiah talks about. And then he, he continues on in verse 7, so right after verse 6 where he gives the names. He says this, Isaiah 9, 7, Of the increase of his government and of peace... There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the reign of the Prince of Peace's Peace will be marked by never-ending peace. The shalom that was lost in Genesis chapter 3 given away, really, uh, in exchange for rebellion, it will be brought back eternally 
There will be no end to that peace. And and is and often point, pointed out, the Jews looked for this prophecy to be fulfilled in, in terms of a strong and a secure nation that, that would be here in this fallen world. They, they looked for a military leader who would bring peace and prosperity by driving out whatever nation happened to be oppressing them at that time. That way of thinking misses the deeper vision of true shalom. True shalom is not just victory over enemies, but a complete lack of enemies due to restored relationships. True shalom isn't just living a long, healthy life, but, but living forever free of death and free of pain. Uh, true shalom isn't just having some of our needs met or even our most important needs met, but every single need met. That is true shalom. And this child to be born, the son who would be given, would be the prince of peace who would restore that. Restore the shalom that was lost in the Garden of Eden. He, he would make into a reality that completely peace-filled existence, which right now we can hardly even wrap our minds around. That's one of the themes throughout the book, uh, throughout all of the books of the Bible, this restoration of, sh of shalom. It, it bookends our Bible. So if you think about Genesis chapter 3, the first earth is corrupted in Genesis chapter 3. God gives us a new earth in Revelation chapter 21. Uh, man was driven out of the garden and away from God in Genesis chapter 3. In Revelation 21, God comes down to dwell with man again. Uh, death, mourning, crying, pain, those things all enter creation in Genesis chapter 3. In Revelation 21, those things are vanquished from creation for the rest of eternity. Uh, mankind sought nourishment from the forbidden tree of knowledge of good and evil in Genesis chapter 3. Mankind will seek nourishment from the spring of water of life and from the tree of life in Revelation 21 and 22. It, it, it's this restoration of all that was lost. And in, what is the city called in Revelation 21 where all this will take place? It's the new what? The new Jerusalem, right? And, and what does the name Jerusalem mean in Hebrew? And it, it can be translated a few ways, but, but it's in awe of peace or, or foundation of peace or way of peace. What, what, what's the common thread there? <laughs> peace, shalom, at, at the end of all things, the Prince of Peace will rule on the new earth in perfect peace. I mean, that is what's coming. And when we think about the Advent season, Jesus was already born. This, this child to be born, the son that was, was to be given, he was born 2,000 years ago. But the reason we still celebrate Advent and the reason we are still anticipating his coming is because in his second coming, that's what he brings. He brings that full existence of peace 
That's what will be the reality when he returns once again. That's why we say, come Lord Jesus, right? Bring on that existence. That's why we look with anticipation, not at the birth, he's already been born, but at the second coming of Jesus. He is the prince of peace. And so, so the last part of that final name in the list tells us what this child will deliver to us. So deliver peace. The first part, prince of peace, reveals some of how that peace is secured and given. So when we hear prince of peace in English, I think we might subconsciously assume that, that prince was paired with peace because it's a nice alliteration. It just flows well together. Maybe it fits well with names like, like the Sultan of Swat or the Oracle of Omaha, right? Or, or, or any of the names that Stan Lee comes up with for the Marvel Universe that have the, right? But that's not, it's not an alliterative nickname given to Jesus. It's not even an English name that it was originally for that matter. The Hebrew word for prince, sar, sarar, it was chosen for a reason, and not just to sound good. It, it, it's a word that means prince or captain, chief, ruler, commander, governor. It, it, it's, it, it clearly speaks of someone ruling, someone reigning from a position of strength. The peace which the Prince of Peace will bring about isn't, isn't a peace that just kind of happens to come. It's not a peace that we stumble into or it was sneakily brought to pass. It's a peace instituted on purpose by the one who is in charge, by the Prince of Peace. But when we think about how he institutes it as the one in charge, you know, from our own human perspective, when we think about peace or like a peace treaty, we might think about one that comes after a conflict between two nations or, or two coalitions, or maybe one that comes as the result of a conflict between two nations. And so in that instance, you know, both, both nations, both coalitions fight together with the intention of defeating the other, right? Weakening their resolve, weakening the strength of their opponent. And then once one opponent sees no path to victory, they surrender and they seek terms of peace, right? That's typically how it works. But the peace that comes in that way is not, it's not true shalom. It's not a peace defined by good relationships. But that's a peace that exists because one side's just too weak and it can't really revolt anymore against the other one. And so you have this disparity of power. But what happens once the disparity disappears? It's right back at it, right? It's not true shalom. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, doesn't bring peace in that way. It's not the kind of peace that he brings, and it's not the way in which he brings it either. He didn't strong-arm the enemy into submission, forcing them to accept a peace deal. This is, this is how Paul states it in Colossians chapter 1. He says it this way, And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace 
by the blood of his cross. Peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus, he restored the peace that was originally found in creation by his sacrifice on the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities in the spiritual realms by by dying on the cross, through the cross of peace. Jesus' kingdom is one that is built and upheld by peace. And, and, and the, the shalom that Jesus restored through his death is, is spoken about and explored really in a lot of different ways in the New Testament. Let me, let me just read a couple of things Paul says. He says in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, I, I don't want to pick on Adam and Eve this morning, but their sin was the first one, and so we need to look at it. It's helpful to look at it. Uh, it helps us visualize so well the effects of our own sin. So when you think about Adam and Eve, prior to their rebellion, their relationship with God was unhindered. Uh, God would walk in the garden with them. After their rebellion, they feared God and, and so hid from him in the trees. The, the relational separation at that point between God and Adam and Eve was shown through the physical separation when they were hiding from him. And, and it's, it's no different with us. Our, our sin, likewise, separates us from God. It destroys a relationship with God. And Jesus, through his own blood shed on the cross, took it, took that sin upon himself. He removed that barrier that sin has set up between us and God. So when that curtain was torn in the temple from, from top to bottom upon the death of Jesus on the cross, it didn't just make a way for people to physically be reunited with God. It made a way to be relationally reunited with God. And, and if you continue on a little farther down in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that Jesus, who knew no sin, was made to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus is the Prince of Peace because he restores and he upholds peace between us and God. That's one of the primary ways that we can see that peace between us and God. But that's not the only way. He's the Prince of Peace because he restores peace among mankind as well. And, and in the New Testament, that, that peace between people, between groups of people, is is most often referenced by describing the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. So I just wanted to read a section that, that really dives into that. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to start in uh, verse 11. 
It says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. So see there he's talking about that separation between them and God at that point. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. There's a separation between people right there. Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So brought near to God, there's peace there, but he goes on and talks more. He says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Uh, this this Jew-Gentile hostility went back hundreds and hundreds of years. And what Jesus did by shedding his blood on the cross for everyone was put everyone on equal footing. So, so often hostility between groups of people comes from, from one group considering themselves to be better or more privileged than the other group. The cross removes that possibility. All people, no matter how we group ourselves, are in need of and can receive salvation through Jesus Christ. This is why when we're given pictures of Christ's kingdom, it is described as being from every tribe and every nation and every language and every people group. I mean, as Paul said in those verses, we're, we're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens and members of the household of God. There's unity together there. We are built together into a dwelling place for God. So because we are reconciled to God in Jesus, we're also reconciled to one another in Jesus. Now, now groups that are hostile to each other might find some temporary kinds of peace apart from Jesus. But as we talked about, it's not true peace. It's not true shalom. It's not going to last. It's only in Jesus that true peace, true shalom between differing groups can be found. It's the only place. So Jesus, the Prince of Peace, he brings peace between us and God. He brings peace between people. And, and finally this morning, he brings peace within ourselves. Yeah, we are, we are complex emotional beings. We are. And because of that, true peace is an internal matter as much as it is an external matter. And we know this, right? You can, you can, you can lock a person in a building and, and they would be protected from any physical danger from the outside, and, and you could have all of their physical needs met in that building, but we know that that doesn't necessarily mean they will be at peace. 
they may still lack an inner peace, right? Even if you remove all of the external threats. I, I, I think about the Christmas story as it's told this time of year, and when we tell the story, we draw from Matthew chapter 1 and 2, we draw from Luke chapter 1 and 2. Do you know there's another Christmas story in the New Testament? It's in Revelation chapter 12. It's a little different from a different perspective. I've yet to see a nativity scene depicting the great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, the fighting angels uh, from, from that version. It'd be an interesting nativity, uh, nativity set, wouldn't it? But in that Christmas story, the dragon, Satan, he loses his battle against God and against God's angels and is cast down to earth. And listen to what John records in his vision and how it relates to this peace within ourselves. This is Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So Satan is the... the <laughs> Satan is the great accuser who acts like this prosecuting attorney, arguing our guilt before God. And John says he does this day and night. Day and night, he is the accuser. Satan observes our sins and demands that we be, we be considered guilty before God's throne. And we've heard his accusations. Right? We've heard them. Sometimes it, it feels like he's broadcasting them for all to hear. Sometimes it, it might just be he's whispering them in our ears over and over and over again. Either way, the, our accuser seeks to rob us of peace and keep us from peace. But John states that the people of God have conquered him. The accuser stands defeated. How, he says in verse 11, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. So by the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross and by our faith in him, we can find peace. Peace with God, peace with others, but peace within as well. I mean, that's what Jesus brings to us as the Prince of Peace. Through Jesus, we do not stand before God guilty. Satan's accusations have absolutely no merit because of the blood of Jesus covering us. Jesus himself said in John 14:1, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus knew that, that faith in him and the accompanying forgiveness of sins that come through faith in him would lead to hearts that are not troubled. 
I think we can accurately say hearts that are at peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace because in him we can finally be at peace within ourselves. So we think about this new earth that's coming, what's talked about in Revelation 21 and 22, and and there will be perfect shalom, complete shalom. Boy, don't we look forward to that. that. That is great. But even here and now, even in this fallen world, shalom is available to us. Peace with God, peace with one another, peace within ourselves can be had now, here. If you feel like you're lacking that peace this morning in some way, I encourage you to look to the Prince of Peace. Look to him. Maybe that lack of peace is felt in our relationship with God. Maybe we feel like we fail God or, or we feel like we disappoint God or God is angry with us. Peace with God is possible and it's offered to us through the shed blood of the Prince of Peace. Our lack of peace might be felt in our relationship with others. Uh, We might find it difficult to forgive, or maybe we're quick to to dismiss someone who's different than us, or, or struggle to have compassion towards certain people. Whatever it is, peace with others is possible through the shed blood of the Prince of Peace. And within ourselves as well. Maybe, maybe we feel a lack of peace within ourselves. We find it difficult to forgive ourselves or live up to our own standards or we feel like our life is out of control. Peace within ourselves is possible through the shed blood of the Prince of Peace. There's no shortage of places to pursue peace outside of Jesus. And, and if we're all being honest with, with ourselves, we'll admit that we've tried, right? We've tried to find peace in different places. But the only place we can truly find shalom is in our Savior, who was born in Bethlehem. What Isaiah prophesied would happen did happen 2,000 years ago. He is the Prince of Peace, and the victorious Prince of Peace will return to this earth one day, and he will fully reveal his kingdom, which will be marked by eternal peace. And so may we submit ourselves to him now and begin living in that kingdom now. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be like the new earth yet, but we can still experience it. We can have that peace in Jesus As Isaiah says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Prince of Peace. Would you stand with me? Let's come before God. Father, we are here this morning. And like every person on this earth right now, we, we long for peace. We desire it.
God, we were created for it. You made us to, to live in that. And even though we as mankind have, have lost it and given it away and, and, and we look for it in so many places, we thank you that, that you've made a way for us to have it again. That in you, we can find shalom. God, we're so thankful for what awaits us in eternity. It, it, it truly is hard to imagine. We know it'll be good, and we know it's what we, cre we are created for. But God, in the here and now, would you help us to look to you for that peace? You wouldn't have told us to pray for your kingdom to come if it wasn't going to come. And God, it breaks into this world as you do your work. Help us to live in that. May we look to you, whatever it is in our lives that's, that's zapping peace from us. God, help us to look for you. God, we, we thank you that you love us enough to do what was required to restore peace. And we know that that took the sacrifice of yourself. It took you giving your life completely. And so we're here this morning. We're, we stand humbly before you. God, we submit ourselves to you. God, we, we just thank you. We love you. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.